Revelation. Where in Revelation were we? Uh, okay, where did we leave off? Aha. Uh-huh. Nine, eight. <laughs> okay. You failed that one miserably. We actually finished the chapter, verse 17. So we're going to pick up in chapter 8 this morning. And we'll read just the first few verses to get started. Revelation, no S on the end of that word, remember that. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. We'll pause there. Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter this morning. But uh, let me just remind you again, the book we're in is called Revelation, or The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book called Revelation. Now, this, is, this whole Bible is the book of Revelations. You with me? Many revelations in this book. So if you're going to say the book of Revelations, you're talking about the whole Bible. Okay? But the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation. And let's remind ourselves what it's a revelation of. It's a revelation of a person. Look at verse 1. What does it say? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That should uh, run a little thrill in your heart if you know the Lord Jesus. Because that's saying that someday every eye will see Him and every knee will bow and every tongue will finally, praise God, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm looking forward to that day. Right there in verse 7, look at it there in chapter 1, it says, every eye will see Him. Now, God is pretty clear in the Scripture and pretty simple with His language. So when He says every eye, that means... Every eye in this room, you, sometime, are going to see Jesus Christ. Think about that. You're going to see Him. You've read about Him. You've heard about Him. Well, there's coming a time where you're going to see Him. And the question is, are you ready to see Him, to meet Him? Before we get into the text this morning, uh, I'd like to just step back and uh, set the context for us here in chapter 8. I'm not going to review the first seven chapters. Um, We're going to have a good review of that when we get up to chapter 12. But uh, I'd like to just kind of stand back and remind us what we're looking at here, because often when we go through these, particularly these passages of judgment in the Scripture, we just kind of come away with this impression that there's all this bad stuff there. And we don't really understand the setting and why 
the, the uh, reasons behind it. So I want us to step back and, and realize that what we're going to read here in this chapter is, is carefully directed and controlled, and let me stress, righteous judgment by God. And it's certain, it's sure, it's going to happen exactly the way it's written here. If you want to know what it's going to be like, just read it right here. Word for word, this is exactly the way it's going to happen. And we're going to see God, how should I put it, uh, interfering with the normal courses of nature. And to understand why and uh, how this is going to happen, I want you to turn back to Psalm 104 for a moment. You see, uh, actually, Eric gave us a good lead-in last week with those uh, final verses he covered in the book of Colossians. Remember it said there, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that all things were created by Him and for Him. Now, that's talking about when things were made. Okay? Creation, the moment of creation, when that happened, He created everything. John 1 says there's nothing that's created that was not created by Him. But not only that, they were created for Him. That includes you and me. We are created for Him. But then it went on to say that in Him all things consist. And literally it means holds together. In other words, He didn't just create things, kind of put some laws into the creation and they just went off on their merry way and He kind of went in a back room. That says that moment by moment, this creation that He made from nothing Every molecule, every atom is sustained moment by moment by him. That's an eye-opener for a lot of people. He didn't just step back and bang, you know, it's like a wound-up toy, and it goes spinning off. You, right now, every breath you take, and we're going to look at that, every heartbeat is given to you by him. Well, that makes him a lot more close and personal than we used to think, doesn't it? And we take that for granted. That's the point. In fact, that's the complaint of God throughout Scripture. He uh, created a wonderful creation. He created us. He put us in this place where he, where he created this beautiful place. He sustains us moment by moment. And before too long, we begin to just take it for granted. Think about it. Uh, Lord willing, if we uh, finish at 12, I'll, I'll try. Got a little late start this morning. But if so, we will have spent an hour here, 11 to 12, singing and studying God's Word. Now, uh, Tommy could tell you this, that uh, the average breath rate of a human being is about a breath every five seconds. That's about uh, 12, 12 a minute. 720 breaths an hour. So by the time the, the message is over, from the time Matt got up here and started reading the announcements, if something doesn't happen before then, you will have received 720 breaths from God. I want you to think about that. In the book of Acts, it says that He gives to all life and breath. Now you think about that. God's Word says that. Now you say, oh no, it's just chemistry, you know, and, and you could get down to the molecular level and talk about how the alveoli absorb the oxygen and all that kind of stuff. 
But remember, it's him who is sustaining all of that stuff. And so every breath, you're taking them right now. And you know, Do you think about it? See, we take it for granted, don't we? And yet in this one hour, you, everyone here is going to receive 720 gifts from God. Did you think about thanking him for them? We don't, do we? How often do you pause and thank God for your breath? You say, well, I mean, you know, breaths, though they're pretty commonplace. Everybody has them. I get them all the time. <laughs> really? Let me make a proposition to you. Let's see how much you think those breaths are worth. Would you take a dollar for the 720 breaths that you would receive during this hour instead? Uh, one dollar. So I'll give you 720 bucks right now. Would you take it? How about 720 million? That's almost a billion dollars. That's a million dollars per breath. Would you take that? Why not? That's a lot of money. You see, our life is precious to us, isn't it? And it's God who is giving it to you moment by moment right now. Now, as we think about that, you might think in your own mind, what am I doing with those breaths? Now, right now, you're sitting here listening to God's Word, I trust. I don't see any sleeping people yet. But you might think, you know, what am I doing with those 720 breaths an hour? What did I do last week with those breaths that God gave me one by one? And you're not, in spite of what we think, you're not guaranteed the next breath. Nobody is. Each one is a precious gift from God. You see, I'm going through this little exercise just to show us, me, how often we tend to forget the blessings of God. And the breaths are just one of an uncountable number that he gives to everyone. Does he gives to all life and breath. And now we're starting to bump into the real problem, you see. Because though God has created us, though he sustains us moment by moment, we naturally forget him. In fact, we use those breaths, and we talk about heartbeats, we use them to not only forget him, but try to push him out of our lives. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? That here he is, moment by moment, giving us all these gifts, and we run Helter Skelter trying to push him away. You know, thanks for the gifts. I'll, I'll take the gifts, but I don't want anything to do with God. That's his uh, judgment, his indictment against the human race. You understand? Now, Psalm 104 is going to talk on a little broader scale, but I'm reading this because it really dovetails with chapter 8 of Revelation. Because it's going to list things that, again, we just take for granted. You got up this morning. Did you ever think, I wonder if the sun's going to come up today? You didn't think that, did you? You know, you went to bed last night. It was dark. And you say, okay, well, eight, eight, ten hours, the sun's going to be back up again. We take that for granted. It doesn't have to be that way. I was, as I was driving here, I was looking at the, the grass and the lawns and, and the trees and how beautiful they are. Well, that's going to be talked about here. We take that for granted. You turned on your tap, maybe, and got some nice, fresh, clean water. Probably just about like a mountain spring this morning. We take that for granted. These things, you see, God is patient, but his patience is going to run out. And so it makes sense 
that when he finally, after all the thousands of years, his patience runs out, it should not surprise us at all that he is going to touch the very things that we as people have taken for granted for all those thousands of years. It shouldn't surprise us, should it? That finally, these things we just assume and expect from him, he's going to take them away. And what a day that will be. You talk about a scary thing. Because all these things were used to happening. You know, the, the rain cycle, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars, fresh water, the ocean and their behavior. Even when catastrophes happen, they tend to be small. That stuff is going to change within seven years, a period of seven years. And what a time to be here when God's patience runs out. But I'd like to look just quickly here at Psalm 104 because it's really going to set up chapter 8 of Revelation. The psalmist here is praising God for this, this care, this sustenance that we've been talking about that God performs day after day, minute by minute, not only for his whole creation, but on an individual basis. Uh, verses 1 through 9 talk about the creation itself. And then he starts in verse 10 talking about this, this daily ongoing care. Verse 10, he sends the springs into the valleys which flow among the hills. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You get this picture of just crystal clear water, you know, flowing down maybe from a snow melt or something. If you've ever been backpacking, there's nothing more refreshing to be out there. You're hot, you're sweaty, you know, and there's a, uh, just a stream running right across the trail of snow melt. Ice cold. And you just, you just uh, uh, lean over and drink it right out. Oh, it's so good. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their habitation. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. Isn't that beautiful? And we take this for granted. I expect, Lord willing, when we go up to the redwoods in... Uh, July, if the Lord tarries, uh, that the redwoods will still be there. You know, those beautiful trees and the greenery, the ferns and the moss and the grass underneath and that beautiful Eel River flowing down, right? Nice and crystal clear. We go swimming. We love to stand up on the rocks and you can, uh, you can get up on, on one of the edges of the river and you look down, you can see all the way to the bottom. It's so clear. Oh, I better stop talking about it. But it's beautiful, and, it, and it's a, a gift from God. We expect it. We're used to it. You know? You know, they say you don't pre- appreciate anything until you lose it. You ever heard that? That's the way it's going to be. Because these things are going to they're go. God is going to withdraw His care that has been so abused and so ignored and so unthanked. And oh, what a time. 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are refuge for the rock badgers. Now he he focuses on... uh, Plants, talks about the grass, talks about the trees, talks about the uh, wonderful wildlife that uh, lives in it. Amy and I went biking the other day, and uh, we biked down to the Sky West Golf Course next to the Hayward, Golf, uh, Hayward Airport. And um, it was so beautiful going in. She kept commenting on how beautiful the grass is. You, you, you've seen golf courses, you know. You'll have the short cropped, kind of yellowish green on the, on the uh, um, 
uh, no, near the hole. And then you'll have a, a different kind of a green on the fairway, and it was all rolling, you know, with sand traps and trees and stuff. And then, it, and then the rough was a different kind of grass. It was just beautiful. But then on the way out, uh, there was this little bird we identified later. It was a, a titmouse, right? And he was so cute because uh, the road we were biking on paralleled the course. So we had that on one side. On the other side was the airport with the cyclone fence. And there's this little titmouse. I mean, he was only about that big. A little black uh, crest on him. And as we were biking along, he would land right next to us and chirp. And then as we biked a little further, he would you know, chirp and fly up next to us and chirp again. He followed us for about a half a mile that way. A couple of times he flew in front of us and landed on the other side. And he was looking at us as it went by and chirped. It was so cute. It was a gift from God. You know? He's so wonderful. His care is so great. Uh, verse 19, he appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. This is so significant because the psalmist is reminding us of the regularity, the dependability, the reliability of God's creation. And I'm a physicist. I can tell you, especially as scientists, we take these things for granted. We say, oh, yeah, the law, you know, the, the basic law of uh, gravitation is taking effect here. It can't help but do that. You know, F equals G, M1, M2 over R squared. Everybody knows that if you're a physicist. That's why it's like that. No! And there's going to come a time when it's going to stop. And then we'll realize that it was God all the time. The reason there are laws is because God is a God of order. <laughs> the laws aren't entities of, in and of themselves. We're observing the hand of God. Read the physicists and the scientists of the 16 and 1700s. The reason they studied nature and expected to find equations that they could finally write out and say, this is the way things behave, is because they believed, whether they were saved or not, that there was an orderly God behind it who cared for his creation and who one day it was GM1, M2 over R squared and the next day it was R cubed. No. Praise God, it doesn't do that. We'd be dead. But never so much as today. Does planet Earth, people here, take this stuff for granted and push God out of it? God has nothing to do with it. How long do you think he's going to put up with that? As he gives each one all of these wonderful things as well as their own life and breath. We should not expect him to continue forever that way. Should we? You wouldn't. And it's amazing to me he's continued all these thousands of years like this. He goes on to talk about uh, verse 20. You make darkness and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun arises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. There's a beautiful picture of the cycle. We can, we can order our lives around the cycle of the sun, the, the light in the day and the darkness at night. I mean, imagine if we don't know how long the sun's going to shine today. You know, maybe it's going to be up four hours. <laughs> You better cram all your activity in because it's going down in four hours. Next day it's 13 hours. No. It's beautiful. God's dependable daily care. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea. Now he brings up the sea. Every one of these is going to be talked about in Revelation 8, including the sea. In which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great, there the ships sail about, and there is that Leviathan which you have made to play there, 
We're not sure what that is. Several of the animals are, are not clear. It's not important. If you think it's a blue whale, that's fine. Whatever it is, he made it. So don't worry about it, okay? These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. Isn't that great? You can just see the hand of God reaching down to this immense creation on planet Earth. And they all look to one source, the hand of God. As, as, and you can almost picture him reaching down and just opening his hand and feeding, you know, like the, um, the guys feeding the, the killer whales at the uh, Marine World. They, they hold the fish up and up come the whales. God opens his hand and all of creation reaches up and gets their food, including you and me. Now you say, well, I know I work for my, my food. That's where I get it. You know, I got a job. Well, remember where you got the life and breath and the heartbeats to do the job. I don't care what it is. He gives all things, all good things to everyone. Verse 27, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. Okay. Beautiful picture here in Psalm 104 of God's sustaining care in his creation. Now, we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 8 here. Because not surprisingly, because we, I'm saying, when I say we in this context, I'm talking about people. I'm a person. I'm an American. I'm a Californian. But in the broader sense, I'm a human being. I'm not an angel. I'm certainly not an animal, a cow or something. So when I say we, I'm talking about mankind in whole, as a whole here, in uh, abusing the goodness of God. We have done this really since creation. And it's not surprising that there is going to come a day when God will no longer just freely give these things. And he's going to stop them as an act of judgment. And so that's what we see here in chapter 8. Now, the the section we read, notice, uh, began with the end of the seals. I I forgot to bring my little uh, scroll with the seven seals. Most of you remember that, right? And uh, there were seven seals on this scroll and on the one that I made. And now we come to the seventh one. And remember we said that uh, apparently from, from Revelation it appears that the seven trumpets are actually contained within the seventh seal. And you'll see that here. And then when it comes to the seventh trumpet, it looks like that the seven bowls are contained within the seventh trumpet, which really gives you a picture of increased rapidity, faster frequency of judgment. So you've got the six... Uh, Seals, and then within the last one, bang, 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 you've got the seven trumpets, but then within the last trumpet, bang, 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 you've got the seven balls. And it's like God's judgment is coming to a crescendo before, praise God, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when it happens. When he's performed the last act of judgment, when earth has uttered its last gasp, then Jesus Christ will reveal himself and every eye will see him. So he opens the last seal and it says there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And you can imagine the speculation that's done in commentaries about that. But really, there's, there's no explanation other than it says there's silence in heaven. And I simply believe that, uh, think about it a second. They've been witnessing the first six seals and you remember the terrible things that happened as he opened them. And now he's coming to the last one. Think of the anticipation and the awe throughout heaven as he comes to the very last seal 
Now what? I think that's what it is. I think it's simply the, the, the awe that it inspires when the Lord Jesus comes to the last seal and opens it. And it's just unimaginable if you think of all the singing and all the shouting that's been going on to this point, suddenly there's silence in heaven. Wow. For half an hour as he opens this last seal. Then uh, we see some um, characters here. There are seven angels. They're called the seven angels that stand before the throne of God. And again, we can speculate who they are, but they're really not mentioned anywhere else. They're clearly the seven angels that stand before the throne of God. And each one is given a trumpet. Now, before they sound, which we'll begin to see in verse 7, something happens. There's another angel who steps forward. He's given a censer. You know what a censer is? We don't use them here. Okay. Uh, now, really, the, the good censers, they were re- really used by the command of God in the temple ceremony, and they were gold, and they would put incense in them. They're the things that they hang from chains, and they go like this with incense in them. You've seen them in, in Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox ceremonies. I don't even know, maybe even the Catholic Church. But yeah, I, okay, oh boy. These are the Catholic churches too. Uh, forget those, all right? The real ones were, were commanded by God, and they were using the celebration of the, of the, of the or the, pardon me, the, the tabernacle and later the temple ceremonies. And it was a, it was a beautiful thing. Uh, you, incense smells good if you get the right stuff, and and there was a special mix that God prescribed that they would put in the censers and they would swing them, you know, as they performed their functions in the temple ceremony. And in fact, it's interesting. God talks about the tabernacle being a pattern of heavenly things. And it's interesting that when he prescribed the tabernacle, he had them put the golden altar, on which was burned incense, by the way, right in front of the Holy of Holies, beyond which, of course, was the presence of God on the mercy seat. Remember that? And here we have the same picture. Isn't that interesting? The golden altar, on which there is incense burned, is right in front of the throne of God, the very the presence of God. The thing I want you to notice here is the prominence of prayer. Did you notice that? This is significant. He was given much incense, it said, to fill a censer. And, and when uh, he offered up this sacrifice, so to speak, of the incense, along with it were offered, it says, the prayers of all the saints. Wow. We could have a sermon on the importance of prayer right out of that, couldn't we? I think prayer must be pretty significant if it plays this part in the scene right here. Think of that. It, it doesn't, think of the things that it could say that were offered up along with the incense. This is the presence of God. You don't mess around. You do only the right thing. Only something that's pleasing to God. And of all the, th- all the activities that you and I do, brothers and sisters, that could have been offered up, the one thing here is prayer. Prayer. Boy, we underestimate, uh, underestimate prayer, I think, in its significance. It's offered up, but then as you noticed, he took the censer and threw it to earth, and really, it was an act of judgment, if you saw. It's, it's a, really a preliminary to what's going to happen in this chapter. And uh, some people think that, oh, okay, they go back to chapter 6, and uh, if you look there, remember we saw... The um, 
martyrs under the altar in verse 9, chapter 6. And here was their prayer. Actually, it's a request. They cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they point to this and say, you see, here's God answering that prayer. Now, that may be in part, but we have to be honest. It's said back in verse 3 that the prayers were the prayers of who? Which saints? All the saints. Right. So I believe this, this is, it's broader than this request of the martyrs. He's really offering up the prayers of all the saints and then those are being associated somehow with this first act of judgment and throwing the censer down. And if you think about it, it really fits in with what we've been talking about. Think of the earth. Boy, right now, what a good picture. Right now around us, are we surrounded by people right now who are worshiping God and acknowledging God? Right now, what do you think? Nope. Now, there are so-called churches full of people, but in most cases, I'm sorry to say, they're there to be entertained. If they're going to spend their hour or two in a church building, well, then uh, they better get something for it. And in most cases, they're really not there to make God the center. You know, they're going to put in their two hours and enjoy it. So even among churches, now I'm not saying all, but many, if not most, God is not the center right now. You believe that? I've been there. And what a refreshing sight it is to God to look around and see those few faithful people here and there who really are thinking about Him, thanking Him, as we've talked about, acknowledging Him for the things that He has done and is doing, praising Him, studying His Word. And so it is when we pray, brothers and sisters. I'll tell you, we're an oasis in God's sight. Think about that. Of a thankless world. What does it say in Romans 1? Neither did they what? Give thanks. Boy, that brings a tear to my eye every time I read that. That God would say something like that. In his indictment against the human race, he talks about they didn't want to include God in their thoughts. Uh, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator. And then there's that pathetic phrase, neither did they give thanks. That means so much to him. And it means so much when you and I just get on our knees. And I don't mean going through emotions, but from our heart, really just thank him and praise him. And, and just by the simple act of prayer, by the way, even asking requests. It's a testimony against the rest of the world. you understand that? As we get on our knees and acknowledge Him the way we should, in the midst of, as Jesus said, a perverse generation, a world that generally rejects Him and wants nothing to do with Him. When you utter that prayer to Him, you're a little oasis there, and you're delighting His heart. And here it's like He's got them saved up. And, he's, and, he's, and, he's, and they're being thrown to earth in an act of judgment. In a sense, to show to the world you know, where it went wrong. Okay, now, finally, the first angel is going to blow his trumpet. And you're going to notice the connection with Psalm 104. There were four major areas of creation, and it's interesting to me 
that those four areas that were so sweetly described in Psalm 104 are going to be stopped or interfered with now. God is going to finally put a stop to His mercy and His grace. His patience is going to run out. So the first one is uh, verse 7, one verse. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now, I want you to just sit there and take that in for a moment. Because you can read those words, but unless you can try to picture it, you have no appreciation of what this is going to be like. And remember what's already happened. People get this picture of the end times. You know, people are going to work and everything's ordinary. I'm going to go shopping today, you know. It's not going to be like that. When this stuff is happening worldwide, you know, boom, 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 boom. This is going to be preeminent in people's minds from, from morning till night. And their nightmare when they, when they try to sleep. So it's not going to be business as usual like people think. When these kind of things happen, remember the fire in Yellowstone several years ago. Remember that? Millions of acres. And if you ever saw a film of it, it's just it's overpowering. Firestorms. Uh, it created its own weather. Can you imagine that? That's nothing. One third of the trees of the earth. Can you imagine that? Now, people read this and they say, ha, oh, ha, blood. Yeah, right, okay. One third of the trees. Ha, ha, ha. Let me tell you, there's not going to be natural explanations for what God is going to do in, the, in uh, the tribulation, you see. People want to read something that they can say, oh, I can explain that naturally. No. It's a, people read this and they say, blood. oh, it's going to be like blood, maybe something red. What does it say in your Bible? It says blood. It doesn't say like blood. It doesn't say as blood. It's blood. You see, if there were just hail coming down, you know what would happen? They'd explain it. Remember the earthquake we had a few years ago? I remember being on the phone to Howard. I was on the phone talking to Howard when earthquake hit. And I was in, uh, actually I was sitting in my pantry, you know, and the, and the bottles were rattling there, but I stayed on the phone. And I could tell Howard was kind of tuning out Finally, he said, I'm out of here. Click. He was gone. But I remember afterwards, I can't remember any of the leaders saying, this was the hand of God warning us. Can you imagine somebody saying that today? You know, Mayor Willie Brown? Yeah, you're laughing. That's right. Step back now. Remember my introduction? That's where the world is. I don't care what it is. It has nothing to do with God. God is not involved in things. He's, if He exists, He's way out there. We don't have to worry about Him. You see. You're not going to be able to do that in the tribulation. Because God is not only going to send hail. Did you notice? It says fire. And, and of course, all the liberals do this, read this, and they say, oh, it must be lightning. Is that what it says? It says fire. Was it real fire? What does it say? Uh, a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Duh. Which hand has the marble? Yeah, it's fire. And if it's real fire, it's going to be real blood. Do you understand? Now, if you sit there and think, oh man, God couldn't do that. Woo! You don't, you don't know God. Your God is about this big. Okay? And the God of the Bible, the God is sustaining every molecule in you and every molecule in the farthest star and the farthest galaxy away from us simultaneously and everything in between. 
right now, moment by moment. So it's no big deal to send some fire and blood along with the hail. Okay? If you knew what a speck this planet was to him, you'd understand. So yes, it's literal blood and it's literal fire. Remember the ground rules when we started the book of Revelation. If the first sense makes sense, don't try to make any other sense. We take the Bible literally. Now you're going to see the word like all over the place in the fifth and sixth trumpets. And so we're going to have to kind of use our imagination since it's like this and it's like that, what things must look like. But here it doesn't say that. I don't see the word like and I don't see the word as. No similes, no metaphors. It's literal. Okay? So don't be afraid when your friends ask you about Revelation 8, 7 and they say, do you really think it's blood? What are you going to say? Amen. That's right. And it's going to be undeniable, you see. That's the point. It's going to be undeniable this that it's the hand of God. Can you imagine trying to explain blood and fire coming down out of the sky? Now, having said that, I wouldn't put it past them. They're going to want to put God out of their thoughts so much, as it says in Romans 1, that I would imagine somebody's going to come up with something somewhere and maybe get a Nobel Prize for it. Second angel, verse 8. Second angel sounded in something like, aha. Now, here we have a like. A great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now just pause a second and take that in. A third of the living creatures. One third. From whales to giant squids that live at the bottom. A third of them destroyed. You see, this is God's creation. And He can do with it what He wants. And He's been sustaining it and holding it. And I hate to say it, spoiling us for all this time. And it's his to do what he wants with it, and he's going to finally stop it. And a third of the ships, I don't know how many on an average ships tend to be out at sea. Let's say it's uh, 9,000, 3,000 of them are going to be sunk. Not 4,000, not 5,000, one third. You see, it's not random violence here. It's carefully measured judgment from a righteous God. Now, it says, like a great mountain. So, it's not a great mountain. It's like a great mountain. And John couldn't compare it to anything that he was familiar with except a burning mountain. Well, it sure sounds like a comet or an asteroid in this case. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I've quoted it before up here about some of the catastrophes we've been seeing. But uh, this one was just a few years ago. It was an asteroid. It was only 200 meters across, about 600 feet, about two football fields. Got that in your mind? Two football fields, big? That's not that big, right? Well, they came past the Earth. They went whizzing by. And in fact, the astronomers, when they first saw it, the sequence, they said in the article I read in Sky and Telescope, it said, first, he was surprised, and then he was excited, and then he was afraid. Because when he spotted it, they couldn't get a real good calculation on the trajectory, and it looked like it was coming right at the Earth. And they can judge by the brightness how big it is at that distance. And they realized, and they still realize today, that if that thing had hit the earth, this is 1997, I think, it would have made an impact that would have been equivalent to gathering all the nuclear weapons of the United States and all the nuclear weapons of the Soviet Union, now Russia and Ukraine and so on, putting them in one place and igniting them all at once. Can you imagine? It was, it was something like 300,000 megatons of energy would have been released by this 200-meter asteroid if it had hit. 
And the interesting thing to me was that the name of the article in Sky and Telescope was A Warning Shot Across Earth's Bow. Isn't that interesting? Now, for you non-naval people here, Matt, Matt will know what that is. Uh, a warning shot across the bow when, when ships used to approach each other. And um, one ship thought, I don't know who those guys are, but I think they may be bad guys. I want to find out. So the way to find out is you don't shoot at them first and ask questions later, but you shoot a, a, a shot across their bow. In other words, in front of the ship, over the front of it. And that says, uh, you better identify yourself. You don't hit them. But you're warning them that the next one's not going to be across the bow. It's going to be in the midships. You understand? That's what that expression is. And it's used quite popularly, a warning shot across the bow. But if you read the article, they were, they were half right. It, is a, it was a warning shot. We've never had anything that big come that close to Earth. In recorded history, anyway. It was very, very close. They were right about the warning shot, but of course they went on to talk about, you know, just the natural way of things. There are all these asteroids out there and we better find out where they are and blah, blah, blah. Nothing about God. Of course, right? Let's leave God out of it, whatever we do. Well, I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that that asteroid, when God created the heavens and the earth, was put wherever it needed to be, on the right trajectory, in the right place, so that in 1997, May 18th, whatever it was, it would shoot right past the earth. you believe that? Some of you do. I do. It wasn't a random uh, near miss that, whew, boy, that was a close one. It was a warning prepared by God. And so it will be with this one, and there's another one that, that comes. The third trumpet is also, uh, it looks like a comet or an asteroid. This one, right here, like a burning like a great mountain, is out there right now, and it's headed our way. And I'll tell you, I think it's almost here. I'll be honest. We're, we're getting close now. Okay, burning with fire, thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Yeah. It doesn't say like blood. It says blood. Remember Psalm 104. Remember he talked about the sea. The beautiful picture of the dependability of the ocean and how men can ply it with their ships, you know, to go fishing, to conduct trade, and so on. And that's done today. They just expect to go out on their ship, go from point A to point B and back again. And God is going to say, you've taken me for granted too long. It's going to stop. I'm not going to let you do that anymore. Verse 10, the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So now we're talking about the fresh water source. You got that? It says um, it fell on the rivers and on the springs of water. What does it say in some of the other translations? Besides springs of water there in verse uh, 10? Fountains, that's right, thank you. Fountains of water. The idea is the source of the water. You see, in contrast to the sea, he's hitting at the source of fresh water. Okay? Now, you say, well, he calls it a star. Well, we call them stars too, shooting stars. And I think as far as John was concerned, he saw it and it looked exactly like a star. So I, I have a feeling it's still uh, a, uh, an asteroid or a comet, but it falls on a third of the rivers. And that may sound a little strange, you know, uh, how's it going to do that? But 
uh, God's doing it, okay? And we're so used to near misses, I've said this before, in earthquakes and catastrophes, you know, when did we have an earthquake with the epicenter right under New York City? Or L.A.? Or some other big... No. They've been, fortunately, you know, near misses, warnings. It's not going to be like that in the tribulation. God, who spared us at all these other times, is now going to make sure it's dead center. And so he's going to direct this thing as it breaks up. It's going to fall on a third of the, literally a third of the rivers. And it's called wormwood. The word in the original is uh, absinthe. That's the Greek word. And it comes from a, plant, a well-known plant that was known then and it's even known today. Uh, it's called wormwood. It's uh, genus and species. One of them is absinthe. It's bitter. That's the point. Very bitter. And so he named, he's named this thing that's out there right now heading our way. He's got a name for it. It's called wormwood. And he calls it that because it's going to uh, affect the water in such a way that it's poison because people drink it and they die. He doesn't say how many. Now, I remember, I, I work out at the lab, most of you know that, and we responded to the accident at Chernobyl several years ago. And um, <clears throat> the problem with it was that it was radioactive, and radioactivity gets up in the atmosphere and is carried by the, the weather, and it doesn't just kind of go away like chemical releases do. It lasts a long, long time. And one of the uh, elements that was released from that uh, nuclear accident was iodine, but it was radioactive iodine. And it got carried by the winds and the clouds over Scotland, of all places. And the funny thing is, there wasn't a lot of damage or, or devastation between the Ukraine and Scotland. That's a lot of country. That's most of Europe. And it really, the bad stuff didn't really happen until it got to Scotland. Why? Because they had a big rain right over Scotland, right when the big bulk of the release was passing over. And it brought it down, and they had to kill a lot of sheep and cattle. Because if they'd eaten that grass. The cows would have given milk, the children would have drunk the milk, and it would have settled in the thyroid glands, and they would have gotten cancer. So, this water, in a sense, came down, you see, and it, was, it would have been poisonous. You wouldn't see it, but they would have died. That's just a small glimpse. One-third of, of the uh, freshwater sources here. We take it for granted, the rain cycle. Think about it a second. Look, Fresh water without salt and other things in it is not a normal thing. The normal water on the Earth's surface is what? That's right, ocean. The only reason we get that pure sweet stuff is because God, not nature, not random events, has made it so that uh, the water goes up out of the ocean, leaves the salt behind. Isn't that neat? Somehow it gets carried up, you know, and it doesn't fall down or anything because it's in such small uh, particulates and it, and it gets carried over the mountains, and they're just in the right place and at the right time, they collect on particles, they believe, and become big enough so they're so heavy, finally they overcome Earth's gravity and they come down in the form of tender little drops, not a big wash, you know, so that you're, you're drowned, but in nice, gentle little drops. And that's where we get our fresh water from, the grace of God, the kindness of God. And we expect it, don't we? The only time we get, uh, ever, ever think about it is when we don't get it. You know, and then we get upset. How come it's not raining? You know, we've got a drought. What's going on? And so he's going to touch a third of these sources that we're so used to taking advantage of during that time. Boy, oh boy. Just one of these would be devastating. 
This, when I read this about the springs, the fountains, it said in Edith's, uh, I think she has the King James there, um, reminds me of the hike up uh, Half Dome. I, I, my first time up there was 25 years ago. I can't imagine that was that long. 1976, I went up there with Roger Ray Buck and, uh, and my brother Jeff. And here we are going up this, the back of this mountain. It's, it's almost 9,000 feet to the top of Half Dome. And you're going up the back of it, and it's, it's all granite around there. What I'm saying is it's not a place you'd expect to find water. And you go, ah, like this. You know, you're, you're up at about uh, 7,000 feet, maybe 7,500 feet, and it's, and it's dry, and it's dusty. And there's this grove of, uh, I think they're cedar trees, on the back of Half Dome. It's pretty big, growing in dirt that God has provided there. But he's provided something else. Up at this high elevation, there is this beautiful, sweet, ice-cold, spring coming right out of the ground. The last place you'd expect it. Right, Tom? Everybody has been up there now should know about this spring. Most of the brothers in here, I think, have been up there. And I'll never forget that going up, and my canteen's empty. I didn't know about this spring. You know, we've all long since run out of water, I think, and there's no way we're going to make it up here. And when we think we're about to die, we see these people standing over beside the trail, uh, drinking water. And we go over there, and here, just bubbling up out of the ground, is this ice-cold water. What a gift from God. Praise his name. And it's not just that spring uh, that he's faithful to. By the way, it's still there. Here we are 25 years later. Annually, he's replenished it, you know. But just think home when you go home today and turn on your East Bay mud tap. You know, that's a gift from God. Don't, don't take it for granted. Well, finally, the fourth angel sounds in verse 12. And a third of the sun was struck. By the way, notice the, the uh, preponderance of the, the fraction of third. And, of course, you can imagine the vain speculations about what's so significant about a third. It's not significant in the number itself, but rather that God didn't do 100%. You see, he's slowly uh, turning up the heat, so to speak, to get men to repent. That's the idea. There will be people on the earth who will not be able to deny that this is God judging the earth. I need to wake up. And he's going to give them a chance with this one-third, one-third, one-third. So a third of the sun third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened and a third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. Well, uh, it, this could be the uh, consequence of uh, the first three trumpets. It's well known. Boy, you get these uh, fires like in the Amazon or some of the other tropical jungles. It, it affects the, uh, the uh, atmosphere and can actually interfere with the, uh, the sunlight Imagine when a third of the trees burn down and then the effect of these uh, two comets or asteroids as they hit. So, it may well be that it's literally a third of the brightness. It says a third of them. Or it could be literally one third of, this, of the sun is just simply blocked out. God can do whatever he wants. However it's going to be, it's going to be eerie. You remember the uh, near eclipse we had several years ago here in the Bay Area? I got my telescope out, put a, uh, a mask over it so that just a little bit of light got through it, and then I uh, focused it so that it went into the garage, and I put a big whiteboard up in there, and it made a beautiful image of the sun. You could see the sunspots and everything on it, and you could watch the, the uh, edge of the moon creep across, and at maximum eclipse here in the Bay Area, it was about a third, and at that point, we walked out in the street just to see what it was like, and it was so eerie. Because you're standing there, 
And, and, and if you don't look up, you think, man, it must be a, a dark cloud cover because it's, it's kind of dark. But there's not a cloud in the sky. And you can't tell by looking at the sun. I mean, you get blinded, you know, that the moon is blocking it. It was, so, it was such a strange feeling. Now, imagine being in the places where it was, you know, 70% or, or full. To stand there in a cloudless sky and the sun's up there, but it's getting dark. Well, it's going to be like that, except it's going to be undeniably the hand of God again. Interfering, if you will, I mean that in the right way, with the things that people take for granted, the cycle of the sun, the moon, the stars. Everything is going to be disrupted, brothers and sisters. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, the reason he wrote these words is to warn you ahead of time. So you don't have to go through this. Because I'll tell you, when people get into this time, we're going to see it. In spite of the increased intensity of the judgments, the hearts of people get harder and harder. Until we get to the end of the bowls, it says four or five times in that chapter that they shook their fist toward heaven and they blasphemed God. Can you imagine that? But you see, it shows the righteousness of God that it's time to bring judgment when we've gone that far. Okay, well, we'll close with just this one verse. I was thinking of Hebrews. uh, In the first chapter, Eric alluded to it when he was preaching on Colossians. I've said that when you study the Bible, grammar is important. You hate that word, a lot of you, but I'll tell you, it can make the difference between understanding and not understanding the Scripture. And uh, God uses a strange combination of verb tenses there to talk about His Son on the cross. In John chapter 8, remember the Lord Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Isn't that great? Was, past tense. Before that, before the existence of Abraham was, past tense, I, present tense, am. You understand that? You do? Explain it to me after, please. At the minimum, it's saying that Jesus Christ is right now existing before Abraham, but obviously he was existing then when he made the statement. Nobody but God could say something like that. Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, it's, listen to the tenses of the verbs. It says, And being the express image of his person, and upholding, the, the tense there, by the way, for you grammar uh, nuts, is gerund, or present participle, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now listen. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying all through the work of the cross and afterwards, this one who sustains creation and does the things that we take for granted, he did it while he was paying for your sins and mine. That's incredible. If ever he were to stop, bring the universe to a halt, it would have been when he was paying for my sins. But he didn't, you see. In his grace, in his mercy, even while suffering agony that is incalculable, at the same time, he was giving life and breath to every single person that was alive and holding up every molecule and every star and every planet. And he continues to do it to this day. Oh, let me tell you, don't continue taking it for granted. And don't be using it to do your own thing. The reason he's doing it, the reason he's sustaining you and giving you another breath is that you might seek him and you might know him and love him and serve him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we can't help but but quote the psalmist when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. 
Lord, may we not be a forgetful people. We pray that as the day does approach, we might be seen to be more and more a thankful people, a people who love their God, who love their Savior, and we might see others before it's too late. Bow the knee now. See Jesus now and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. For we ask it in His name. Amen.